Welcome to Mock 10 Sports. Glad you could join us for this July 27th, 2023 episode. Hey, we're getting closer every day, every second, every hour. We're getting closer to college football. Remember, a lot of fall camps starting next week, starting for most, starting next week. Get fall camp in and football's here. Football is going to be here. A little acclimation period before we get into some pad shells and we'll get into scrimmage time. Um, but what's what's kind of going on? Right, we still got a little peaks and valleys as a fan as fans here. We're gonna go up and down here. We're gonna be fired up for fall camp. I think we all are gonna be jacked at it. Little football, some practice reports, some intel. Hey, who had a good day today at the quarterback position? Oh, who's from an Alabama fan's perspective, the quarterback perspective uh, position? And then also, who's gonna be starting at left tackle? How are we gonna be moving that around? How how are they gonna be moving that around? Also, um, if you're LSU, how are we looking on the front seven? The offensive line gelling together. Uh, Arkansas, how's the new coordinators looking? AM, Bobby Petrino, Jimbo Fisher, Steve Adazio, how are we looking? A, a lot of a lot of questions. Florida is the offensive line developing. Graham Mertz, or is it Jack Miller? Because it all depends. But um we're gonna get a little bit, and this is how teams feel. We're gonna get a little bit into like two weeks of fall camp. After about the second scrimmage, two and a half, three weeks in, you're tired of hitting yourself. You're tired of hitting your teammates, you're tired of hitting your brothers on the gridiron, you're, you're, you're tired of just practicing against yourself. It gets a little mundane, you're ready for an opponent. So that last week, week and a half, it's, it's coaches, they try to reel that in. You don't want to be peaking too early, week, week and a half out for your first game. You get tired of hitting yourself, so it's going to be peaking value. So in about a week, week and a half, we're going to all be jacked. We're getting all the reports, info, two weeks out, scrimmages, scrimmage, we're going to be fired up. We're going to be getting more intel. In about a week out for week zero for really scratching that surface of getting football. We're going to be wanting we're going to be wanting to get a little bit more football ready to have a little live action play an actual opponent. The players and staff feel it. Also, fans feel it as too. They feel it, fans I feel like feel it too after experiencing it a little bit last year. But just wanted to go through that and prayers up to your recruiting staff out there. So the last week they've been grinding. It's Thursday. They've been grinding it out the last weekend that it is not dead before it goes dead in August. Tip of the cap in CAA. It's Best thing they've done in a long time, making August dead during fall camp. But big recruiting weekends to establish for the high school kids, the prospects go practice with their own teams. Again, the college teams start focusing on their own players as well. Uh, big pool parties, uh, a bunch of picnics, stuff like that. Just getting shored up some of these last, uh, some of these recruiting visits, seeing where a lot of these teams stands. Remember, a lot of these classes are somewhat filled. They're holding some portal spots. But again, feel like you're locked down. Get a lot of your commits together. Continue to Build that bond, brotherhood of guys. Hey, this is where I'm going to go to school here for hopefully the next three or four years. So you're going have guys from the high school. What's going on this upcoming weekend? You'll probably, if you follow your team, like getting a lot of recruiting updates from your beat writers. Uh, because after this, it goes dead for the whole month of August. And then it opens up again um, September 1st when the kids start visiting four game days. So that is where we're staying. That's where we're at right now. Again, prayers up for your recruiting staffs out there. It's also a big what if episode. You're right. You heard me right. What if? Uh, I'm going to present a few what if scenarios for a, a deep, most of the SEC this year. Uh, in regards to this upcoming college football season and how that will affect that specific team and how that will affect the rest of the league. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, we also, it's recruit, it's scout school with Recruiting 101's Josh Murphy. We're back. Three guys we're evaluating tonight. We're going to go Damian Pierce, former running back from Florida. Uh, Kate Mays, former offensive lineman at Georgia and Tennessee. 
And then uh, Joan Williams, former corner uh, defensive back for the Vanderbilt Commodores. We're going to break down all three of those. Josh will join us probably around here 7-15, 7-20-ish. We'll get him on. But uh, before, I just want to let you know, had a uh, last night, got with Chris Stewart. If you don't know who that is, uh, it's a sportscaster for the Crimson Tide Sports Network, Network for the University of Alabama. Also, the play-by-play guy, the voice of Alabama basketball and Alabama baseball. And then also he filled in for, as you know, Eli Gold, the longtime voice of Alabama football, had cancer last year. Chris Stewart uh, was a plug-and-play, did a great job for the 2022 broadcast for Alabama last year. I, I had a behind-the-scenes interview with him. I'm going to get that cut up, get that posted, send that out. So be uh, paying attention probably over the weekend, early next week, get that out for you. Great interview. I mean, he's gone through his own tragic, had three major uh, – health scares in a year, overcame all that, had a stroke, uh, had open heart surgery, guy, guy overcame a lot, just a great human being overall, kind of, not kind of, he is a part of the Alabama Athletics Department family, so it's a good interview, I'll post that, I'll keep you updated, but let's get right to it, what ifs in the SEC, so like I said, I'm going to present a what if scenario that I've gathered through talking to buddies some fans on social media, and it's not your typical well, what if Georgia doesn't win the SEC, then who? No, these are more like in-depth, in the weeds, maybe some teams you're not even really talking about. I, I got a couple of Mississippi State, Kentucky's, and Auburn's talked about, but all Auburn's going to be in this. It's a what-if scenario I'm going to present, and I'm going to discuss how that's going to affect that team or and or affect the rest of the conference as well. So let's get right to it. What if Mississippi State can win one of their first three conference games at home against LSU at South Carolina? In Alabama. I think the best shot to get this done would probably be in Columbia, the Williams Bryce Stadium against the South Carolina Gamecocks. I think that one win, going one and three, one and two, getting one win out of those three between LSU at South Carolina and Alabama. I think it's going to be South Carolina. I know Alabama and LSU are both at, in Starkville. It's the one road game. It's kind of the game I feel a little bit. I believe for South Carolina, it is the week after Georgia. So that, that, that state gets them on a good timing as well. Uh, if this were to happen, if State gets one of these, guaranteed bowl, they're going They're going to get six wins. That should be the goal in this three-game stretch for Zach Arnett, first-year coach from Mississippi State. That should be a goal for him and his staff. Uh, they win that. We're, we're talking 7-8 ceiling now. I mean, if they could win one of those three, remember, and then go get one or two of at Arkansas, at Auburn, Kentucky at home, and then Ole Miss at home then year. If they could get two of those, State's looking at maybe potentially eight wins. I mean, I'm going to pull up the schedule here for you, share the screen, Right here. So you see Mississippi State right here. Highlighted right here. So, yeah, I mean, if they get – I mean, I'm going to go win Southeastern. This isn't my formal prediction, but this is what it kind of looks like it'd be real in play here is win Southeastern Louisiana, win against Arizona. Let's just say they get one of these three. Let's see they beat South Carolina. So they're three and two against Western Michigan. That's four and two, getting in the bye week. Let's say they um, – let's say they beat Arkansas – there's five and two, lose to Auburn, five and three, beat Kentucky, six and three, lose to AM, six and four, beat Southern Miss, seven and four. Then it comes down to that old Miss game. It comes down to that old Miss game for that lat for that eight win. I mean, if they can get one of the three, again, like I mentioned, LSU, South Carolina, or Alabama, they're set up, I think they're set up pretty well to for sure win six, most likely seven. I think with the ceiling being eight. So I, I think it's a one of the more bigger what ifs in the SEC out there that no one's really talking about. So Mississippi State, remember, 
Just get one if you're a Mississippi State fan. Lock that three-game stretch in. Circle that game against South Carolina. Circle that game on South against South Carolina on September 23rd. I think you got to feel real good about your bowl chances early. Feel real good about – I mean, how good would you feel if you're Mississippi State and Zach Arnett goes reels off seven wins in his first year and beats Ole Miss? Mississippi State fans would be ecstatic. Would be ecstatic. You need to get one. Got to circle that South Carolina game. Uh, moving on to the next what if. What if Kentucky goes two and two in the tough stretch to end the year of Tennessee at home, at Mississippi State, Alabama at home, and at South Carolina? Let me read it to you again. What if Kentucky goes two and two in this four-game conference stretch in the year of Tennessee at home, at Mississippi State, Alabama, and at South Carolina? In my opinion, I think Kentucky's standing at an eight-win season right in the face if they get two. They get two of those. They're standing right in the face with a ceiling of nine. Call me crazy. Call me crazy. Because you know what that means? If they're going two and two in that stretch. And most likely, I think those wins would be – people call me crazy. I don't think they're going to beat Alabama. But Alabama goes to Lexington. It's going to be cold in November up in Lexington. It's probably the furthest north Alabama's going in a while that late in the year. Um, after the LSU game, which is going to be a knockout physical dragout game like it is every year. And Alabama traditionally stu- struggles, stumbles a little bit in that game because they usually traditionally play Mississippi State the next week. They hadn't lost Mississippi State since 2007. So if you go look up, well, Dave, you're wrong. They hadn't lost that game. I'm not saying they lost. If you've watched the game, sit there and watched them. Alabama's played their C-plus, B-minus games a lot in that game against Mississippi State, and it's still won. They've struggled. Mississippi State's had their chances to pull it off the end once or twice. Really, 2017 is the one that comes to mind. But uh, not crazy. I don't think it happens. But I think realistically to get two, it's going to be at a two out of the three of Tennessee at home, at Mississippi State, or at South Carolina. But if this were to happen, that means the big blue wall, Kentucky's offensive line, is back to normal. The Vanderbilt transfer running back, Ray Davis, who's coming in to replace Chris Rodriguez, is rocking and rolling. Also, the run game's going, as you football gurus know, you can run the football, it sets up the pass, and I think Devin Leary is going to be really good. The NC State transfer, we don't have to keep saying the NC State transfer. Everybody knows that if you've been keeping up with the show. I think he's going to have a big year no matter what. But if they can run the football, bring some more guys, make the opposing teams, bring some more guys into the box, some more one-on-one situations on the outside, and they got weapons on the outside, Davian Robinson, Varian Brown, Dane Key, Probably some of the best weapons Kentucky has had from a skill position standpoint in a long time. So if Kentucky can get two of these, go two and two in that stretch of Tennessee at home, at Mississippi State, Alabama at home, at South Carolina, I think eight. I think eight's real. I think eight is real. They were to pull off three. Heads up. Heads up. Nine, depending on what they did against Louisville in the year. But I think they should get that win this year. But I think Kentucky, that would have happened, which I don't think is crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Two, it's home, two of them are at home, two of them are on the road. They could potentially get to eight. Moving on, our next what if. What if Auburn's run defense improves? For those of you who did not know, that was not a very good defense last year, especially a run defense. I mean, this is a run defense that gave up at least 170 yards a game on six – sorry, I should say at least 170 yards a game in six different games. They gave up 170 yards, at least 170 yards rushing, 170 yards rushing in six different games. I mean, it's half the schedule. 
They only played 12 because Auburn was out bowl eligible last year. So in half of Auburn's game games in layman's terms, they gave up 170 yards rushing or more on defense. It's bad. It's bad. They can only improve. Uh, but if they could just improve to giving – I went up and looked at the numbers today. They can just improve to giving up 140 yards a game. That's a top 50 rush defense. I mean, we know the game's changed a little bit. It, it, it's changed a lot in the last five years. It's more spacing. Teams are willing to give up. There's not as much – there's not as many dominant front sevens, front defense. We're like, hey, we're going to shut down your run. Teams are willing to give up a little bit more, three, four, five yards. Just be good. Like I say, be good on third down. Create some turnovers. Bend but don't break. Hold teams to field goals in the red zone. More than that than just, hey, we're going to get off the field three and out. So, I mean, for Auburn, if they can just get it down to 140, improve a little. I mean, it's 30 less yards a game they're giving up. I don't think that's totally unrealistic. It's a top 50 rush. If they can just be a top 50 rush defense, giving around, giving up around 140 yards per game, I think they can get seven to eight wins. And I think seven is very realistic right now. Um, the secondary with Nehemiah Pritchett and DJ James, I think he's there. I think Auburn's going to have a solid defensive secondary. It's a bunch of older guys. It's guys that Kevin Steele Kevin Steele, when he was recruiting, it's it's the young cats. They recruited their last few years under Gus Malzahn and um, Wesley McGriff and um, Coach Woodson, who who is now Marcus Woodson, Coach Woodson, who is now the co-DC at Arkansas, is a hell of a recruiter. With Kevin Steele and them and Marcus Woodson, those guys on the back end and Crime, Wesley McGriff, they were collecting good talent on the back end. Those guys are seniors now. So this wasn't Horson's guys they brought it in or just the one-half class that Hugh Freeze has really got. This, this is – Kevin Steele and them, did really, they, they recruited really well on defense. I was there at the time. They recruited really well, and so did Will Muschamp the one year was there. It's not talked about enough. It's a story for a different day. But these are older upperclassmen guys in Auburn secondary, so I'm not overly worried about that, but they have to be able to stop the run. They can't be giving up 170 yards six different times last year. 170 yards rushing. I mean, that just, that just can't happen. The key will be the front seven staying healthy, like I said. And if they could go three and one in that stretch of Ole Miss, Mississippi State at home, both those games are at home, at Vandy and at Arkansas, it would give them a great shot to get to nine probably if they could knock off Alabama. I mean, they could be – they go three and one in that stretch against Ole Miss and Mississippi State at home and at Vanderbilt and at Arkansas. There's a good chance Auburn's rolling in with eight wins in the Iron Bowl. And when Auburn's good at home, Alabama traditionally struggled there. It is what it is. Uh, this Auburn team, though, I, I, not really to give a full projection. Remember, I'm going to give you my predictions halfway through fall camp. I want more intel, the better, um, before I give you my final projections. I'm real prideful in that. I like to look back at the end of the year and say I gave you a good product. I did my research. I'm going to take as much time as I need to get this uh, happen. I promise, for the first game for week zero, we will have some predictions. Um for Auburn, right now I'm leaning seven wins. It feels very 2009-ish. Not saying Hugh Freeze is Gene Chizik, for you don't know. 2009, that was Chris Todd-led Auburn team. Uh, Gene Chizik's first year. They were in a lot of big games. They were they were they had a lot of chances. They had some chances to win some big games late. And they did it, but they went seven and five, like eight and five, if they beat Northwestern in their bowl game. That's it. Kind of feels like that. Feels like that. Not a bad team, above average team. Kind of feels like that. But for Auburn. They can if the run defense can improve. I think eight wins is real. I think it's real, and they go three and one in that stretch. Nine ain't crazy either. To the next what if? Remember, this is the what if segment. I'm going over certain situations from a couple of different SEC teams. Of hey, if this happens, this is how this will affect this team. This is probably how they got to this situation. This is how it affects the rest of the league. But what if South Carolina starts three and two? 
in their first five games. What if South Carolina starts three and two in their first five games? North Carolina, Furman at home, at Georgia, Mississippi State, and at Tennessee. That's the first five games right there. I'll read it to you again. North Carolina in Charlotte, Furman at home, at Georgia, Mississippi State at home, and at Tennessee. To me, that would signify South Carolina's offensive line and the run game are at least very serviceable. I mean, I, I really question South Carolina's offensive line like everybody has over the years. But also, I don't think they got a lot of running backs back there. That, they really don't. Um, Juju McDowell is kind of their guy, but it, it's back. Uh, carry on Joyner played in multiple different positions, played quarterback in a bowl game, kind of being your all-athlete all guy during his career at South Carolina. And then they brought in Mario Anderson, Transfer from Newberry College in South Carolina. So not a lot of depth there, not a lot of real talent there. I mean, Mar Marshawn Lloyd was a dude they had. It came from DeMath, but he transferred to USC, USC out in South Carolina. I mean, in Southern California, USC. So, I mean, not a lot of depth in that backfield. But if they were to go three and two, that means somebody's stepping up. That means either Mario Anderson, the Newberry transfer, or to carry on Joiner is probably helping the load. Because Juju McDowell is just an undersized kid. He can't do it by himself. That also means the offensive line's getting some push up front. I mean, three and two, that'd be that'd be impressive. But injuries will be important. They can't go three and two and be decimated by injuries. Can't be a bunch of casualties in exchange for three wins. I mean, it's because it, they still got a very difficult schedule. To say the least, I think the ceiling for South Carolina this year. This is nothing against Shane Beamer and them. I, I I like what they're doing. I just think the schedule's tough. I don't think the offensive line's there. It really wasn't there last year. Uh, I think the reason why they didn't give up, they improved in the sacks department because of the improvision and the in the pocket mobility of Spencer Rattler to extend some plays. So I, I don't really even think the off the line was that great last year. It was an improvement, but I think their ceiling's eight, floor probably five. I think they're going to be somewhere in that six and six, seven and five range. Uh, but then go three and two here. They're well on their way to potentially getting those eight wins. Um, it's just a different, difficult schedule. I, I just think this year with really any coach, it's going to be tough to get eight wins so like i said six seven realistically for South Carolina. but if you start three and two and most likely i mean those wins would have to mean obviously Furman. you're going to get one one of those three north carolina a neutral site you probably got to get you're going to lose at georgia you're going to lose at tennessee you got to think tennessee's gonna be fired up their fan base is gonna be rabid that south carolina embarrassed them last year and then ruined their shot at getting the college football playoff have a hard time seeing the Gamecocks winning that one this year but if they were to get three it had to be that opening win against north carolina and charlotte obviously Furman against the paladins They'd have to beat Mississippi State at home. It's not totally unrealistic, but the key is starting off 1-0. If they do that, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. But three and two, that happens. South Carolina may hit that ceiling eight. A little bit off the field here issue. Not off the field, but this will be an, I thought this was an interesting one. What happens if Ole Miss goes six and six or worse this season? What happens? What if? I think. I think if you go six and six or worse, things get a little, little hot for Lane. Stove, stove, not a little. Stove's hot. Stove's hot. I think some of it is already um, a wound. It's currently open that he can never, without thinking about it, undo. Uh, I think last year the way he handled that whole last those last two weeks when the Auburn job came open, his name was thrown in. Ole Miss gives him a contract extension, sits on it, sits on his desk throughout the whole Egg Bowl week. I think how it was handled those last two weeks and how they played and got embarrassing against Arkansas and lost at home to Mississippi State in the Egg Bowl. Uh, 
it, it could smell trouble for Lane Kiffin around here because I'm telling you, Ole Miss fans uh, can be unrealistic a little bit at times and be a little spiteful. So if it's six and six or worse, they lose to Mississippi State again. And he's got a two-game losing streak against Mississippi State and a first-year head coach and Zach Arnett beat him in the Egg Bowl. It's not going to be good because I think right now there's there's some some Ole Miss fans like that been burned because they thought he, he played them against Auburn. He really wanted to go to Auburn. They still feel that, and it's kind of like, hey, you got this is from an Ole Miss perspective. Hey, man, you uh, Auburn kind of pulled the rug out from you late because you're playing games, and you didn't really want to be here with us, and you ended up being a distraction the last two weeks. We got embarrassed against an SEC West Division rival on the road in Arkansas, and we lost to our in-state rival that we can't stand. And Mississippi State, if, if everybody don't know, doesn't know, Ole Miss Mississippi State may be the most toxic rivalry in all of college football. Toxic, not the most traditional. These two teams truly hate each other. The fan bases do not like each other. It's cooled down a little bit, especially when you had Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin because they respect each other. But it was during the Hugh Freeze, Dan Mullen. Remember, Dan Mullen would only call Ole Miss the school up north. Uh, so I'm telling you, if Ole Miss goes six and six or worse, if they do, mm, not saying something out of left field can't come and bite. Lane Kiffin in his tail. I'm telling you, that's the way it is around in Oxford with that fan base. You never know. I think I think Lane needs to go try to get eight this year. Seven, he'd probably be okay. But you start getting six or worse, you lose to Mississippi State. Just saying, something comes out of left field. You heard it here first. Uh, moving on as well here. What if for the first time since 2014, an SEC team is not playing in the national championship game. Let me repeat that. What if for the first time since 2014, an SEC team is not playing in the national championship game? Um, I would think that would I would think that would mean Georgia probably lost in the semis because I think Georgia's going to be there even with one loss. I probably think they probably roll in with one loss. It's not going to be in the first 12, but I can maybe see SEC championship depending on who it is. Would it surprise me? A little shocked? No, wouldn't be shocked. The streaks do to end at some point. Remember the last time that an SEC team was not playing in the uh, national championship? It was Oregon and Ohio State in the first ever playoff in uh, 2014. The streaks do to be over, though. And Georgia almost didn't make it last year. They were fortunate to beat Ohio State. They did. They were fortunate to beat them. But some days, man, when you're playing that high level of competition, it's down to the final four. If you bring your B minus C game, or even B game, and they're playing their A game. So Ohio State played really well against Georgia last year. Georgia just played a little bit worse. They're not winning that game, and it could have been a blowout. Uh, if you're not playing your best, you can easily get beat. That's any weekend in college football, but especially when you get to that level of college football playoff games. You just never know. Georgia can go 13-0, and but losing the first round of the semi-playoff, then the semifinal, and they're not, they, did, they played their worst game all year. I mean, look at Alabama and Chosen 18. Looked, looked great really most of the year, except a little bit in the first half of the SEC championship game, but played their worst game all year when it counted the most in the national championship game against Clemson, and they got the doors beat off them. Clemson controlled that whole game. So you never know. Would I be shocked? Like I said, uh, no. A little surprised, yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah, not, again, not ready to get final predictions, but would not be shocked if Mach 10 Sports is putting an SEC team in the national championship. A um, couple more before we get over to Josh. Uh, what if Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Petrino's marriage is a huge success? And if that happens, which I think it will, I think the Aggies floor at that point is eight wins. I think they're going to be at eight wins if the offense is rocking and rolling, and I think it will. I like the offense this year. Um, I think the key, though, is going to be the defense. And D.J. Durkin stepped the new and second-year defensive coordinator, D.J. Durkin, stepping it up, stepping it up. 
uh, this year. I mean, he had a big improvement from year one in 2020, his first year at Ole Miss, to year two. He had a bit massive improvement. So it's not that far-fetched. There's a lot of talent on that side of the ball. I just think he was putting them – he was trying to call the perfect defense for that perfect play, when in reality, dude, you have a lot of really good players. I mean, we remember the 2022 class, the defensive line class. Due to injuries, a lot of them had to play. So really, those guys are probably closer to being a little bit of juniors from a rep standpoint than they are true sophomores this year. So if you just – DJ, Coach Durkin, if you just let your guys go play without thinking too much and have a little paralysis analysis – I think they're going to be successful on defense. So, I'm not, again, the, the what if was if Bobby Petrino and the Jimbo Fisher marriage is going well all season. I think the floor is eight. I think people call me crazy. I think AM can compete for a playoff spot in the West this year. The West is more open than it's been since probably 2014, 2015. Well, it wouldn't shot me if it's Alabama or LSU. You're going to throw AM in there because they're talented. It's just them continuity staying on the same page. Eight's the floor if the offense is good. If the defense has improved some, Look out. I'm just telling you, that's a two-game improvement. They could get to 10 wins. Don't call me crazy. But I think if the marriage is working out offensively between Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Petrino, ceiling is floor. That's what that means. That's what that means. Um, and then finally, the last what if. What if Florida wins at Utah on that opening Thursday night of week one in Salt Lake City? Crazy to say a big a what if after Florida beat Utah last year to open up the college football – well, not college football season, but week one. Now, granted, we saw how Florida ended up fizzling out towards the end of the year, but uh, they beat them, and it was in the swamp. But like I've said to you before, if I had to buy or sell Florida now, I'm selling them. Nothing against Billy Napier. I'm just selling them right now. I don't like the situation at quarterback up front. I like their running backs, but I'm not overly fired up about the offensive line, and I question some of the skill guys on the outside. Uh, but if Florida were to go win this game, it – it would prove me wrong that the offense is a lot further ahead than I thought. I trust the running backs. I like Mark Montrell Johnson. I like Trevor Etienne. I think they're both really good backs, uh, very winnable backs, especially in the SEC. Just offensive line's got to get started. But if that were to happen, they go in. That means the offensive line played its tail off by Rob Sell, led offensive line group. But I think Utah's going to be smart enough to be able to stack the box. Um, win or lose, Utah's going to do it. And that means also Graham Mertz is probably making some plays. Uh, at least the necessary plays to keep to keep the chains moving for that Florida offense. I think that's what that would mean too. I think Graham Mertz would be better than people are thinking, or who knows, Jack Miller. But I'm leaning Graham Mertz. The run game, the offensive line specifically, and that means Graham Mertz would be playing much higher than I think he's going to play this ceiling uh, this season. Um, but if Florida were to win this game and the offensive line stay healthy, look, look out. Not Florida's not going to compete for these, but. Maybe closer seven, eight wins this year if that were to happen. But not because they won it week one at Utah. That's not that's not what I'm meaning. But because of the, just the stack boxes. boxes. And if you can run against the stack boxes that I think Kyle Winningham and that Utah defense is going to put up against Florida to prove that, hey, we know you like your running backs. We're going to make you run into the teeth of our defense. I'm going to dare your quarterback to go win some one-on-one. -on -one. Dare your quarterback who's unproven. And I think some of your unproven guys outside except Purcell, uh, Ricky Purcell, I think I'm going to make your quarterback and your wide receivers go win one-on-one -on -one battles against my DBs. I don't think you can consistently do it. That's going to be Utah's game plan on that Thursday night. Guarantee it. Take it to the bank. So if all if Florida were to win this game, the offensive line is really establishing the run and getting some push. Because um, like I said, if Mertz is in second and third and long all game, night-night, lights out. It, 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 they're going to have to establish some kind of run even against some of the stack boxes. So if Florida wins that game, that means the offensive line, if they can stay healthy, is going to be serviceable, and I would probably raise the ceiling of Florida's win total potentially being eight with the floor being six at that point. So that's what that would mean. But just getting a couple of what-ifs in, 
Uh, hope you enjoyed that segment. We're about to move over to Scout School, so let me get Josh Murphy on. Send the link. Yeah, I had some other what ifs potential. One I was thinking about putting on there. We can talk about it for a little bit while Josh can. What if Alabama doesn't win the SEC West for a second straight year? I know that's crossed some people's mind, but what if that actually were to happen? What, what does that mean? I mean, you think Alabama's getting doubted this year. Uh, imagine what the doubt would be. Imagine what the doubt would be if, if LSU or anybody else came and won the SEC West this year. Alabama would be really doubted if they didn't win the West again this year. You think they're doubted? Like I said, this year, you've seen nothing yet. If that, And, again, I don't think that would mean LSU had totally taken over the West. It would just be two times. Granted, that is not um, – last time Alabama did not win the division in back-to-back years was what, probably 10 and 11. Auburn won it in 10, LSU in 11. But, really, for Alabama, you kind of feel like they got their revenge in the national championship game. But Alabama would have to really – it would go back to some recruiting misses, honestly, if they, if they don't get it done this year, in my opinion, on, on the lines of scrimmage, on the offensive line and defensive line. But the whole Alabama dynasty program, I think, would really be in question from a championship level, top two team in the SEC if they do not win the West this year. But Josh is on, baby. Let's get him on. There he is. What is up? What is up? Like he's playing for the Baltimore Orioles, baby. I wish. I wish. Um, uh, so hold up. So I was listening to the deal. Um, so you you live you live in Oxford, correct? Correct. And you've lived there for how long now? Was it a year and a half? It's okay. You've been there. You have a pulse on Oxford, right? Like you're 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 pretty you're plugged in. So <clears throat> it's really to the point where a sub eight win season lanes potentially out, in your opinion. I don't think a sub eight. I think six and six or more. I think seven. As I'm saying, it's seven. And- if, if you lose seven, if you're seven and five and lose to state, it depends. But I think they're so burned. I, it was almost, it's almost like the you have a girlfriend and it's like, you know, she tried to get back with you. I and mean, granted, I don't think me or you would do this, but there's some guys out there that I'm sure you knew your girl was texting another guy and she tried to get back together. Or it's when y'all took a break and she tried to get back together with her ex boyfriend. It's like, you know, she did. And he went with the other girl. It's like, you're only with me. Well, let me ask you this. In in that uh jealousy or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, what are you hey, hold up? What are you drinking over there? What do you got? Um sponsoring Celsius right now. Celsius, yeah. hey, weird flavor here, Murph. Sparkling mandarin and marshmallow. Oh, how's that? I don't know who passed that through the taste. I mean, what guy's sitting there being like, you know what flavor we need to make? Spar- uh, we, uh, marshmallow and sparkling mandarin. Well, how is it? Pretty good, dude. I usually get this. Oh, there you go. Question. No, no, no. I'm just saying. How does that come to mind? That's just an interesting. Oh, it's not a bad thing. It's just interesting. They're just out there hiring the most creative people over there at Celsius. Real thinkers, you know. Real people <laughs> that blend uh, different uh, different concepts that you wouldn't think of. I got myself uh, a liquid liquid death. The water over here, Barry. You ever had it? That pretty good. Oh, yeah. pretty good. Um. But yeah, so okay, so I, I didn't realize um, things had gotten so bad in Oxford in terms of like the the relationship. I, I do see he does look kind of fed up, a little over. I saw him SC Media. I think he feels like he didn't have the support that he needs, maybe um, to do what he needs to do. 
Um, the question I have then, and I get like you can, who who are they going to get that's better than Kiffin, even if he is kind of side eyeing them right now? Enough for them is is a a is a disengaged Kiffin just is it easier just to replace him? Is that kind of what you're saying? See, I think it'd be it, it'd be my thing. It was just I can't say some stuff on here, but like I feel like some of it would be remember Hugh Freeze didn't really get fired for his off the field stuff. It was like someone told me one time he's in the middle of the end of the fourth quarter when they were losing that 2016 year to Mississippi State in the Egg Bowl. People started sending like author like sending beat writers like bad stuff personally about Hugh Freeze. Like I feel like Mississippi's weird enough where it's like, all right, you kind of screwed us last year. We know you don't really want to be here. You were a distraction at the end of the year. You kept probably play you kept playing us and Auburn pulled the rug out uh at the eleventh hour when you wanted to go there, but you thought you had as much time as possible. So you don't really want to be with us. And then now you've only won six games. Uh you don't really fit us and we've lost Mississippi State two years in a row now. Some crazy fanatic fan, I don't know, going going to dig into Lane Kiffin's personal life and sending it around and it gets out. So, something like that. It's just something like that. I'm not saying it will happen. Just wouldn't be overly surprised. All right. We'll say, all right, we'll say they do. Let me flip my original question. Say they do go for a uh split, whatever. Where where like all right, Kiffin missed on Auburn. From his perspective, I would assume the SEC is probably as, as good as he's going to get. Where, where does he go that's better than Ole Miss at this point if he if he missed out on Auburn? Now you know, it would come open. They would probably hire him. You know, because see, see, I see. I don't. I don't know if like, I would he leave at some point. Like, I don't. I don't think Napier. Um, if it got real bad, they may do something this year. So I don't think it's going to be get that bad, but. Would, would Florida go after Lane? I, I mean, I think he would definitely leave here to go to Florida. But would he, they go after Lane? It's a good question. I don't know if they want to go so portal heavy uh, with him. But he would be an inter- that'd be an interesting kind of hire there. Hell, I mean, if Dan Lanning in the next two years does he leaves, do they call Lane Kiffin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he decided he decided an extension recently, didn't he? They offered him, but I mean, nothing that probably some school in the wow. SEC, if they like, like a Florida, if they really wanted him, couldn't sure. go pay. Right. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I'm with you. I think Lane Kiffin's the best coach they could probably get it on. I mean, really, oh, well, it's kind of be both ways, right? Like on both sides. Like, where are you going to go? And then on the other end, where are you going to go? It's kind of like, are we going to get better than Kiffin in terms of what he can do offensively and the amount of you know? Because Ole Miss is capped, you know, to some. Yeah, point. I mean, Ole Miss, and when you throw in. As you know, you throw in Oklahoma and Texas and start in the league in 24. Yeah. I mean, what's yeah. really your – I mean, what are you yeah. really – what are expectations? Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Point, what are realistic right. – and this is coming from a team that's the only team in the SEC West, besides Texas A&M, who's only been in the league for 10 years, to never win the SEC Western Division and play in Atlanta. Ole Miss is the only team that it was a traditional SEC team when they started the divisions that have never won the West. So it's like you said, what's really the expectation? Like, right. Realistic expectation. I, th- right. and I think that should be eight wins, a really good year. Go get you nine or ten, but you're not going to consistently win nine, ten games at Ole Miss. No, it's just going to be hard. And that's what I'm saying. If you if you're comfortable, kind of like being entertaining, giving Kiffin a, le- a leash to be him, 
uh, putting up some points, probably having some cyclical years where you may be, you know, down to six, seven wins, you know, a year or two, and then you bump back up to that nine to 11 win, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think some of it too is Kiffin's going to do what he wants to do. He doesn't really care. I mean, I've heard he orders food from a, from a non-catering company that they're supposed to use contractually with the university. He doesn't care. I mean, their big recruiting weekend is called Juice Weekend. It's named after his dog. Like, they market his dog as, like, the mascot. So, I, if you're, like, a traditional Ole Miss fan, you're probably a little bit like, man, if you're going to put your dog all over anything, you better be winning, man. <laughs> well, yeah, it is Well, it is kind of like – and I get it. It's kind of like him kind of making a mockery of the whole thing that's become a mockery, right? He kind of pokes fun at the entire – idea of what everybody has to do and what you have to do. And I get it because it is a little bit, you know, absurd. But it is just kind of interesting because I get it like from a sense of like Auburn maybe, Florida maybe, but in the sense like you would think Florida's at least probably two years away, huh? And and Auburn's at least I mean I feel like it had to get really bad for Napier. It'd have to be it'd have to be another losing record. And and then on top of that, like are you gonna so to pull it would mean you're not gonna really uh galvanize a florida uh fan base if you're pulling in kiffin off a six and six old miss run too you know or a six you know whatever a seven run old miss run you know if, if napier you know you know had an off year or whatever so it is it's interesting at this point like all right you kind of oversell your hand you kind of played your hand you know whatever you, you indicated you maybe want to go to auburn you maybe feel capped out at old miss it didn't work like you said cast out of the bag but at this point Ole Miss fans know you want to leave. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they know you're open to leaving. But, it, but, but, but again, like, at this point, like, you're either leaving conferences and taking a willing conference step back to take a team advancement. But, like, even then, ACC, he's not going to Clemson. He's not going to Florida State. Uh, I, I don't know if North Carolina, where that stands in terms of wanting to deal with Kiffins. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he, he, what options is he really? Yeah, you know, things like is that better than Ole Miss? You know, after a certain point. Yeah. So it just becomes. Yeah, it'll be interesting with him. It's kind of like eh, it's less than six or less, and you lose to your state in-state rival for the second time in a row to a first-time head coach. Which I, mean, I don't think I mean state's pretty state's more talented than people think, so I don't think it's outside the realm and it's in Mississippi State this year. But I feel like that would rub some probably big time old Miss donor money people a little bit of the wrong way. Kind of like, man, if you can go do all this and say whatever you want, no, promote your sure. dog. It's the same I, thing for players, right? Like everybody's, yeah. you can do your deal if you're if you're doing your deal, right? Like. Just don't be doing it, and then we're not winning because n- nobody nobody laughs at the class clown when you know he's you know when he's failing everything you know whatever that's a terrible now you know what I'm saying like it's not fun when things aren't going well you know what I mean correct so, Mark a little scout school already told uh, people listening we got we got our three guys Damian Pierce running back from University of Florida we got Cade yeah. Mays offensive lineman. From the University of Georgia and the University of Tennessee, and then we yeah. got uh, Jawan Williams, who was a corner defensive back from Vanderbilt University. So those are the three guys we will be um, evaluating tonight. Uh, but let's lead off with Damian Pierce. Mark, I'm gonna put the film on if that is okay with you. Yeah. Mark, yeah. anything jump off your head? Let me introduce him real fast. Damian Pierce, 2018 class. Uh, obviously running back, listed at a high school, 5'11", 205 from Bainbridge High School. For those who don't know, Kirby Smart's alma mater, 
Florida signee. He was a former Bama commit at one point uh, and was a fourth-round pick by the Houston Texans in the 22 draft. Murphy, anything off the top of your head? You remember the storylines, uh, accolades, um, stuff, anything like that from Damian Pierce's recruitment? Yeah. Um, Can you see well, this? You good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah, I was at Georgia still when Damian was coming through. Um, that was, you know, me working with Coach McGee. So I was working with the running backs at the time. So uh, we were recruiting him. Uh, you know, he was an offer guy for us, guy that we really liked. Um, but, you know, like, I, I don't know. It, it, it I, I don't know if it seemed like he kind of wanted to get out of the state. I don't know if we weren't, you know, he wasn't ever like priority number one, number one. He was a guy that we had on our board. We cut him up every week. We showed him love. We obviously invited him to games, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, he, he was a guy that we went and visited and went and saw, uh, you know, obviously was, was a, was a priority, but I don't think we anticipated maybe, uh, the next couple years with him in the, in the fourth round pick and then maybe the impact he had, uh, with the Texans last year, but always loved the physicality, always loved the, the, the body control, the balance, you know, the burst, he, he, the things he does, you know, um, if you watch the Texans, the thing he does here in high school is the same stuff he does well for them. He's, he's not a burner. He's not Mr. You know, 40 yard dash or anything. Um, you know, he's not, he's kind of a short strider. He's not up there picking his knees up crazy, you know, anything like that. But, Very short strider. That's what stands out when you see him get out in the, get right, out in the open you know, field. Um, but, but, but tough physical, uh, you know, uh, you know, low body, you know, low to the ground, uh, you know, able to take a hit. Uh, able to kind of, you know, be able to, to 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 bring defenders with them. You know, it's not a guy that's going to run out of bounds, you know, not avoiding a hit, uh, you know, really. Like, I mean, this play alone is the same. And it's funny thing, it's the same thing he does with the Texans too. So this play alone, um, you know, probably broke, what, four, five, six tackles yeah. just, you know, for his four or five-yard gain. And, and, and that's the thing I think that uh, in hindsight, so if we were to do – uh, you know, what did we miss, right? Like if I were to do, what what did I miss? What did me and Coach McGee miss about, um, you know, Damien coming out? Because it's true, like he's not a burner. He was never Mr. 40-yard dash. I don't think he was like crazy catching balls out of the backfield, versatile kind of deal. Um, you know, he, he he's not a flashy, flashy guy, but he's tough and he's hard-nosed and he runs physical. He's, he's, he's going to drag dudes with him. And it's that element of, of, you know, as we focus on the height, weight, speed, measurables kind of stuff, Damien's whole game is kind of predicated on stuff that's not that, right? It's it's some of the other stuff that you can't teach. Uh, just his physical, his, his body type and his dimensions in general, lower kind of fire hydrant, right? Hard to tackle guys like that who were – that thing about like, you know, what we'd always say like a center of gravity of like a tree, strump, uh, tree stump or a fire hydrant, how hard it is to push something that's low and, and has girth like that to the ground, how it is to push it over versus something that's maybe tall and lean, right? So his natural body type has that thick fire hydrant build. And when you can, and you add, oh, there's a catch. Uh, when you kind of add that to, uh, you know, his uh, um, the mentality that matches, you know, its ability to, to really utilize the skill set. No, I, no, you're 100% absolutely, absolutely correct. I mean, combine numbers here. The only thing you read, it was 5'10", 218, ran a 4'59", uh, okay. 40, which you, you could see. Which you, you'd probably say, well, yeah, I thought this kid would probably be just above 4'6", but 4'5", I mean, you weren't surprised, but you're like, eh, it's, it's about in the region you'd see with him. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what what I think. Yeah. Um, and again, like that's not that's the thing. You know, with with uh, the thing with um, you know these guys as, as it's all kind of the, the trade off, right? Like if you don't have uh, elite size, measurable speed, whatever, you got to make up for it elsewhere. And with him, what he does really well is that. He, he, he and, and you don't need home run, home run, four, three speed to be a running back. You don't really need that because you're not you're rarely kind of in situations uh, for that to be, you know, utilized the, the way people have kind of made it out to be. If you're running four, three at running back, as you know, Murphy, you're giving up you're giving up some size for speed there. I mean, you're not no a two ten dude running four. I mean, it's a freak. And that's the trade off that, you know, so you want a guy that that, that it's kind of like when you did a creative player. You know, if you ever did create a player in a game where it's like where you get taller, but you you kind of give up, you know, some of the the athleticism and the agility. That's the the trade off that you typically get, which is when people transcend. And there's some of that breakaway speed when you transcend. Um, you know, when your athleticism transcends your your body dimensions, uh, that's when you kind of really get into that freak, you know, territory in terms of like people like LeBron and you know Miles Garrett or whoever you know whoever it is, but. You know, in terms of Damian, what he does really well is that he's not a freak, freak speedster, but he's tough. He's physical. You saw the the body, the the contact bounce, right? The ability to take a hit, spin out of it, stay upright, put his hand up, play physical. He's got the good short area quickness. It is more maybe elusive than you would think. Uh, just maybe by looking at him, kind of has that short area uh, ability to, to kind of sink his weight and, and, and kind of make some guys miss in space on top of his ability to kind of run you over. You saw uh, the ability to catch, you know, when he needs to. So, you know, for, for him, I think, you know, in hindsight, where, where you missed is, uh, you know, kind of like, and I don't want to say, kind of like Robert Woods the other day, right? Like we were saying, like Robert Woods wasn't out there, Mr., you know, uh, height, weight, speed freak. He just did a lot of things really well. And that's kind of, the Damien implements a similar kind of game in the sense that, He's not freak freak athlete, but he does a lot of things across the board in terms of what you want from that position really well, and he does it uh, with the right mentality, which takes any good player, you know, to great. So a little Gator Chomp at the end that must have been post flip um, from from Bama. I don't remember how long he was committed there, but I do remember um, when he committed. It was a big deal, and then and then when he decommitted, went to Florida. It was a big deal too. And I, I don't was Georgia. Was that Zamir that year, or who was it in, in, in 2018? 18. Was it yeah. Swift? Or was it Swift? Okay. Um, no, but you're right, Murph. What initially stood out of his was just his lower body strength, just the right. natural. I mean, you even looked at it like even his knees were a little not kneed. Like he's kind of turning, but I think that lets him, his hips stay within his frame so he doesn't totally get out of, outside of it. So like you said, he's not an overly twit, quick twitch kid. But right. I think what you saw too is – when someone when a tackler would initiate contact with him to try to bring him down, and if they did, he drugged them a little bit, another yard or two with his leg power, just generating that power in his lower half. Where you're just like, dude, I mean, you have a lot of people that are like, damn, that I mean, I got this guy down two yards on the field, but that hurt. Like, you know what I mean? You start collecting a lot of those, and he's doing that against DBs that are smaller frame kids. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take its toll. I mean, that kid's going to be sore as hell the next day. And you know, the thing that that goes overlooked you know, within that is how important the league uh, you're playing in, um, you know, like in the, in the SEC, especially you got to have guys who are going to drag defenders who are going to get some extra yards. It's a tough, it's a physical, it's a, you know, whatever kind of league that everybody knows, 
you got to have when it really matters. And that, and that's like for us when, you know, when, when we were looking for guys, the position, that was one of the prerequisites that we'd always set was, you know, uh, does he initiate contact? Does he run out of bounds? Right. Does he, does he break tackles? Does he, does he, uh, does he break the first tackle? That's always a big thing. Cause he make a guy miss one way or another, whether that's, you know, elusiveness or, or running through you uh, in the, in the case with Damien here, you got to see a little bit of both uh, in his, in his highlights, but, you know, that's such an important uh, part of, of running the ball, especially in the SEC, is just the ability to uh, uh, not only make the first guy miss, but after you do, you know, see if you can drag the, the next couple guys, you know, for an extra, you know, two, three yards uh, uh, as part of the – even just the physical demeanor uh, within the conference, you know. Oh, no, dude. No, you're 100%. His film was more impre- – like you said, if you're looking for a track and film, you're a big like – track and field i want some speed or like these combine measurements he's not gonna win that right i mean he's not gonna win that competition like you said you almost gotta go look at his film with man this guy breaks a lot of tackles he's a strong like you said right good fire hydrant tree stump is a good way to put it you know it's funny because i think uh it's one of those things where like i think as an industry we over like you know me and cooper were talking the other day as an industry so much we overcomplicate this process and we nitpick and we, we try to like look at all the factors and we over, you know, we watch the film and watch the film and rewatch the film and everything like that. And it's funny because it's a year, like we said, in which, uh, you know, Swift was our guy and Swift kind of represented a different back, a different direction, you know, out of the backfield. He was from a different part of the country. So at that, you know, he's more exotic. He's foreign in our sense of, you know, our recruiting footprint. He's from Philly, uh, he, he's dynamic and t- in a different sense than than Damien is, and it's just funny now. You know, four years later, you're watching him. You're like, oh man, Damien. You know, he's good, but he can't do what Swift does. And then now, you know, to be here, you know, three, four, five, whatever amount of years later, and then both be in the league, both you know, bring their skill set and, and and be able to bring it to both college and the NFL and implement it uh, effectively, just shows you like. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate this process because the film is really good. And I think when you look at them side by side, it's easy to kind of split hairs and get really into the weeds. But uh, it, it's better tape than I remember. And, and I think just kind of uh, the the beauty of some time uh, between, you know, seeing, you know, because there's so many. And that's the benefit of being at Georgia, right? You know, or, or any SEC school to, or team like that. You see such, such good players. You sometimes need to see the players uh, in different lights in different parts of the country in different settings to really get how relatively good they are uh, to the rest of the country, how it may be skewed uh, if you're if you're just existing in a certain regional domain. Yeah, I think Damian Pierce is one of those guys. I think this wouldn't be for everybody, but I feel like a lot of people would be that guy. Initially, you watch him the first time and you're probably watching multiple runbacks in a row. But He's a guy I think if you went back and kept watching the film, you would grow to like him more and more and more. Like you just keep evaluating. I think that's what makes Alabama or what made them so good initially is they continually watch guys week to week just to, from Nick Saban just being, you know what, I like this guy. I mean, we kept watching him game to game. And it's like you never know what mood you're in sometimes. I feel like you can attest. Sometimes, Murph, like you're in a pissed off mood. That's going to kind of affect how you are evaluating somebody. Where if you come back two days later, you're in a totally different mindset. You're like, I like this guy. I've been with several coaches that have watched the same exact film, the same kid, same film, 12 hours later, and it went from a recruit camp to an offer, um, the same tape. And it just was a 
you know, and that's the thing that's too that people overlook a lot of times that there is that they're people and, and real life happens and whether that's uh, home life, you know, if a, a player in the room mispracticed, got hurt, uh, failed a test, you know, whatever it is, there's re, you know, there's it's a job that these coaches are having to do. They're and, people too. You're right, Murph. They're right. people too. Like you never know if that guy's struggling. I mean, we're getting real personal here. You don't know if that coach is struggling with a marriage or something just happened. No, you I mean, just got you a call know. and you go in. It's like you said, you made a good point too. Todd Gurley's hurt this week. We don't think he's going to play. He didn't practice all week. It's already Thursday. He most likely didn't play. And that coach is sitting there like, shoot, dude. I mean, uh, what was the running back's name, Murph, that played there for Georgia a little bit? Uh, Brendan uh, uh, was in that time frame at Georgia. They had a big – who? Brendan Doug? Yeah, Brendan Douglas is getting my two reps this week, man. I'm a little worried. If Nick Chubb goes well, down, I'm in trouble. I, it's kind of like I'm not really worried about this high school kid right now. I'm trying to get my running back depth in order because I have some injuries. Well, and that's the thing, too, is like a lot of these guys – and that's the pressure of the job. You know, most of these guys are operating on what, a two- to three-year gig as it is. Um, you know, you're week to week. You're kind of in it. You got to get your recruits. You got to get your guys locked in. Locked in. You got to get prepared for the next week. You know, it's a lot of going on at the same time. So I think, you know, for for me, when I'd eval, I think that was such a, an important part of this process for, for me, especially when I was really in the thick of, of evaling as more of like a, a, a finder uh, in that role for, for Coach McGee. Um, it, it was just important for me to understand his dynamic and what he's going through and, and, and trust myself and what I'm looking for and what we want, you know, what we're looking for so that I'm aware of when it's a good time to watch, when it's not a good time. Uh, you know, maybe if, if you know, if, if I can see things that, that I know he, he values and if, if, if maybe, you know, it just it allows – the better that relationship is, the better. Oh, he's going to get back going. Hold up. We'll get him back to where we were. He was talking about kind of the dynamics of uh, – from a recruiting staff standpoint, when to take guys to uh, watch with position coaches because, again – Position coaches are human beings too. They go through personal stuff. So we we're just talking about how your opinion can change uh, watching a kid from, hey, if I started watching him on Monday, I may be in one type of mood. Don't really like him. If I come back two days later, I had a better day, I'm going to look at this kid a little differently. So that's kind of what we were talking about with uh, kids, just co position coaches kind of changing their opinion from that standpoint. But um, going back a little bit before we get Murphy, I want to pause where we're at. We were at a good point. I liked where we were at right there. But I hear Josh is back, baby. We got him. Murph, he's back, baby. Like he never left. Uh, well, uh, Murph, but we were. I didn't leave. I was sitting on the other channel. So we were we were talking about uh, just just coaches being humans too in their eyes and how it how their daily home lives or how stuff's going on in the building can affect the way they watch. But Murph, not to put you on the spot here, but. Anything you remember that would always just stick out when you watch with Dell McGee? And if people don't know, Dell McGee is the running backs coach at the University of Georgia right now. Coach, I mean, a who's who of running backs room. But anything like it was like a non-negotiable for him that you're always like, oh, yeah, that guy had to have that for him to really be all about him or move up his board. Um, Well, you know, just kind of going back to what we said, he, he always like, I mean, just knowing where we played, uh, I think that was always an important Competition thing. was big to him. Well, 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 yeah, but I'm saying knowing where we were at Georgia and what we were looking for, and he felt like really we could go, you know, really anywhere in the country and get yeah. you know, the best players we could we could get, and you know, and he inherited 
a room that was as you know as good as anybody in the country in terms of what he was getting and he really took that idea and and really you know uh, right behind it we, we immediately were, were going into texas philly miami uh north carolina georgia i mean we were nationally recruiting uh almost immediately so uh really his you know if you look at his guys all the guys kind of have a similar profile um they're bigger guys you know not necessarily always tall but sometimes you know um bigger guys they can take a hit play behind their pads play with physicality um contact balance was always big uh ability again to 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 uh, uh make you miss whether that was in the open field with speed or with physicality you got to have some ability to make a guy miss they buy extra time buy extra yards uh that was a thing but you know I think the, the, the biggest thing was, uh, you know, footwork, burst, acceleration, um, vision, you know, all, all that obviously yeah. was very big. Uh, being a natural ball carrier was big because uh, it is a, there's a certain look uh, that a guy has when he, when he sees the field clearly, when he sees the field well, when he feels uh, the momentum of the blockers and kind of where things are going. He, he, he liked a natural runner. It's hard to teach a guy to run. if it's that is, No, you're 100%. The feel to be able to like get skinny in your vision. I think you can improve the vision a little bit with drills, but a lot of that to me, that's a natural, a natural feel when to cut back and get skinny between. You can improve it. I'm not saying that. Right. It's just like this conversation for another day. I don't think you can overly improve accuracy. I think that's kind of what it is. I think you, I don't think you can like night and day. If a guy's inaccurate as a passer, I don't think he comes to college and magically becomes inaccurate. Well, hey, passer. you know it's funny. I was reading about. Um, I was reading about. I'm sure you probably saw it. it was a tweet within the last couple of days about Bill Walsh when he was at uh, with when he was with the Bengals. And basically, his quarterback couldn't throw it more than 12 yards or something with any kind of degree of accuracy. And so he just tailored the whole offense to work with that, right? Like, and I think that within itself is a whole conversation like we had the other day. Like, no, you may not be able to fix it if you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. But if you're asking the guy to do what he can do and you put that skill set within a certain box – then, you know, if you're asking the, a guy to, you know, push the ball downfield versus what he was asking the guy to do in terms of, like, let the receivers do the do the thing and you just hit a spot, you know, it's just kind of an interesting kind of dynamic in terms of you may not be able to coach accuracy, but you can coach uh, within the skill set that players have to get the best out of it and not ask them to do things that, that, that maybe their skills aren't able to translate towards, you know. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely. It goes back to another story, I guess, story real quick. Like, uh, I think it was Belichick or Saban when they were the Browns were talking. Like, you know, the NFL is different. The owners want the guys who make the money, who are high paid players to play. And it was something, it was one of their DBs, I forget who it was. It was one of the higher paid, higher paid guys in the league, but he was an older veteran at the time. So he couldn't move as well and he couldn't uh, play man. So he had to come up with it. He's like, we had to change a little bit how we like press bailed with backpedaling. With the, I forget what specific DB because he was a little older, but he's like, I could not play him because the owner would be on my tail because he's one of our highest paid players we just signed. So he's like, I had to change a little bit of our technique so he was able because he was a little bit later in his career and he couldn't move as well. So we had to change a little bit. I couldn't just go play straight man and try to – because he's like, he'd just get run right by. So we had to bail, pre, uh, press bail a little bit more to come up with a different technique. But, Murph, right. transitioning to our next scout school participant today, who do we got? Staying on the offensive side of the ball. 
Cade Mays, our first Cade guy Mays. through multiple schools on the list, 2018 class, offensive lineman, listed out of high school, 6'6", 318 from Knoxville Catholic High School in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's Signed cute. with the Georgia Bulldogs right out of high school, ultimately ended up transferring to Tennessee and was a six-round draft pick by the Carolina Panthers in the 22 draft. Pulling up the film now, Murph, uh, anything background, uh, anything initially with Cade? Uh, not really. Um, not specifically with Cade. I mean, obviously, I remember him coming through, you know, being a Tennessee guy, Tennessee legacy, getting out of Georgia, getting him out of Tennessee at the time. Uh, I don't know if that was the Pruitt era or, or what era that yeah, was. Yeah, he transferred to, he transferred to Tennessee with the Pruitt deal. So he left. Okay, okay. So he left. If I, if I remember his recruitment originally, Butch Jones, Pittman, is that Pittman and them got him. Remember, he was the one his dad got, got his thumb cut or finger cut off on the official visit at Georgia. No, I know, but I'm but I'm saying, um, was it the end of the Butch Butch Jones era? No, it was Pruitt, Pruitt and them got him to Knoxville. No, but I'm I, saying I, I, when Georgia got him the first time, is that part uh, of it? Yeah, I think I, I think that he was the 18 class. This would have been Pruitt's like first half class. So yeah, I mean Pruitt okay. didn't really know. Will Friend, I think, was the offensive line coach at Tennessee then. So I don't think they would have they they didn't have the time to go really get him, I think, right out of high school. Gotcha. They weren't there long enough, I should say. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like it was a it was a transitional time. George took advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing with him is I I, I think, you know, like from we're looking at offensive line, you know, uh for us. He 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 plays tackle six six three twenty as a as a as a high school player is, is really massive. You know, it's a it's a oh, big long, game. Long, as long as the long as heck too, Murph. It, it, the combine he measured arms thirty four and an eighth arm. Wow. Yeah. So uh, so I mean, just like a, a freak um, in terms of his his size, his length. You know, it's not it's not. You know, I wouldn't say it's bad weight. Um, you know, he, I think he, I remember him having kind of a unique body type. He wasn't, you know, like he kind of always felt like he had a guard body type, even though his length may be correct as a tackle. You know what I mean? You don't really see the feet to, I, I, I always remember not really seeing the feet to play to really, I think he could be serviceable and get you through a game, but I think his total big upside would be, I'm with you on the interior. I mean, he's nasty. Like he plays hard. He's a violent player, as you're seeing on this. Like you said, I don't know if he could totally survive just with the um, the feet. I think he lacks some of the quick, uh, feet quickness. Right, and and that's something that's that's so you know that that you know coming out of high school and then making that transition is, is hard when you're six six three twenty because literally you're able to physically manhandle everybody. And because he is a good athlete, and because he has such length and 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 strength. He, he, it's not like he's just out here just just playing off of pure raw whatever. He he is a good uh, 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 player, but he he like you're saying he's not you know out there you know doing a samba or anything. He's not Mister Fluid with his feet. He he is a little heavy footed. He's not out there really running up uh, up in space. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Well, he is actually, and he looks good when he's doing it. Um, and I think you protect him. He's at he's what is it? He's probably. From an athleticism standpoint on the edge, you tell me if I'm wrong, he's probably really a little below average, which you like, but he's actually probably above average to good for a guard. Like, you know, he's kind of that tweener on the outside where he could right. survive, but from right. an athleticism standpoint on the inside, 
he could really survive. I mean, I looked up his combine numbers. I mean, his 10-yard split, 1.86, 26-inch vert, and I was reading most successful NFL offensive linemen, I went back and looked, they did a combine test, usually ran the 10-yard split between the 1.8 seconds to 1.92, and uh, he was in the 1.86 range. So he's in that. So it's like you said, I think he's a good athlete. I think he's a good enough athlete to survive on the inside. And I think he'd probably want a little bit more uh, athleticism and uh, foot quickness to survive from it, especially from an NFL standpoint on the outside edges. And not to mention, again, how how much everything is so relative. Like, he's a player that I think he came into a situation at Georgia. Like, he would prop he could probably start at at left tackle in college at ninety nine percent of the teams in the country, right? Like most mm-hmm. teams, he could do that role, and he did that role. I don't know exactly if he went right tackle left exactly at Georgia, but he also went to a situation where he was going into one of the more talented offensive line rooms in the country, and and he had to compete, you know, probably you know amongst two or three you know, uh, 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 guys that, that ended up playing on Sunday, two, three, four guys that ended up playing on Sunday. So um, I, I do think in college for sure, because he does have the relative athleticism, the strength, uh, the the ability to, to kind of move guys off the ball and, and play with good base. And, um, you know, he, he is a good player uh, coming out. Um, why, why do you think in hindsight, like all right, you're saying all this, where did the dots maybe fray a little bit in your opinion in college where he didn't necessarily come through and live up to that five-star number one, whatever recruit billing? The guy was, I mean, who did he play for? Three different staffs in college, Georgia, Georgia. Then he went to Pruitt with Pruitt and them. And then, and then his last year was Heupel, which I mean, Heupel is not really, I mean, at offensive line, I mean, you're not really going to get totally developed if like he's an offensive lineman just in that system. It's not, it's not, it's nothing against Tennessee. I mean, they're winning football games with the system they're running right now. So it's just, I don't think he ever got for besides going down a long rabbit hole here, lack of better. I think just developed because he was going through what three or four different offensive line coaches throughout his time. Well, hey, and and I, you know, and so basically, one, you're saying you given what we know about him, so like he's. He's going to give you versatility, right? He's going to give you in the league. He's going to give you kind of that swing versatility because he has the size and length, because he has the functional athleticism, because he's done so previously. I think he's probably played – I don't know if he's played center – at least probably three or four positions across the offensive line. So he tested well. He he has the length. He's he's got a lot of starts on his belt. He's got a lot of versatility. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that, that I learned later on that I didn't necessarily understand. Playing offensive line in the league, most of those guys are are not, you know, like most teams are carrying, what, six, seven guys on a roster. Um, yeah. You know, there's a big drop-off from the elite and the elite and just kind of having capable bodies, you know, and after that kind of like everybody knows them, Trent Williams – Lane Johnson's of the world. Most teams are just out there throwing capable, functional, healthy bodies, you know, as much as they can that can learn the playbook and, and can hold it down, you know. Um, so if you get a guy like Cade who's got a lot of starts under his belt, played in the most, you know, competitive, you know, conference in all of college football, um, you know, played along, you know, multiple positions, can give you versatility, can test well. 
Um, I, I think you're probably looking at a situation if you can find some continuity. Uh, you said by the Panthers, right? Yep, six round. Find some continuity, you know, with Frank Reich, Thomas Brown, who I work for at George's, is the uh, offensive coordinator uh, there, um, you know, with them. And, um, you know, he comes over from the Rams, so they're going to be utilizing some of that Rams, you know, offense. Um, you know, it, it may be a situation where Cade's in a, in a better deal than he was ever in college just by being with a, with a, with a staff that's, you know, made up of a lot of former players, made up of a lot of guys that have kind of been there and done that and, and know maybe how to get the best out of uh, guys in their skill set because he certainly has the, uh, the athleticism and the, and the versatility to make an impact. Yeah, and I totally forgot how nasty he was. That really stands out. You can tell, like, he, he's a violent player. Like, he, like, he, you can tell he's, he's going – to impose his will, hurt people, or it looks like it. And he was a guy that was kind of around for a while, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just going off the top of my head here. I, I don't think he – I think he maybe had the same offensive line coach once, maybe twice, in, in back-to-back years once or twice. Yeah. I forget when he got to Tennessee. I think I think he was going to Tennessee that 2020 COVID year. He was going to go there, but that was Pruitt and it was last year. Hey, did you so see Pruitt got hired um, by high school today? Yeah, I did. I did. How, Murph, uh, interesting story here. Drew Drew Hickson told me a little playoff here with Cade May. You've heard this. Sam Pittman saved this man this man's father's thumb. Oh wow! Were you uh, were you weren't at Georgia? You weren't at Georgia then? No, that was 2018 class. You weren't there. Yeah, apparently. I mean, you I think, he got his he's got his he's got his thumb cut off by a lawn chair when they brought it out for his official visit to go watch bowl practice. And I guess the dad unfolded it wrong and it cut off his thumb. And Sam Pittman grabbed the thumb they ran into the training room put it on ice and they hauled tail to the hospital and he saved his uh, drew drew was saying yeah i just got done dropping he was telling me one story he's like yeah i just got done dropping my will be to the uh airport and i was coming in i was getting off the elevator and Pittman's haul tail haul tail and they got the dad's hand all wrapped up for circulation and they're like get out of the way get out of the way we got it he's like dude i didn't even know what was going on until i got there and people told me but he's like yeah dude cut cut it cut his thumb off Pittman jumped on it like nobody's business, like he was a emergency aid. He's like, we got to go. Let's go to the hospital, save it, got it on ice. You and know, I think sadly, that, I think sadly that's, that's why the, I think Georgia wouldn't let him out of his uh, – wouldn't sign off for him to go to Tennessee initially, and I think they threatened the school to sue Georgia. So that's what ultimately got him to release him so he could go to Tennessee. Yeah, you know, that's uh, – I think if I remember correct, my all of this kind of blends – at this point blends in together – I believe that was the year I left Georgia. It was the year I went to UW. So I left in January, which would mean all this is during the January OV. So it's right after I left, I believe, that this is all going down. Yeah. That's always uh, remained a story that I'm not entirely sure uh, how it happens or what goes into it or, or how a folding chair could ever remove somebody's thumb. But it certainly uh, changed the way I, I open chairs moving forward because it sounds, <laughs> like, it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> or if anything, before we wrap up, Cade Mays, anything else to add? Yeah, uh, you know, he's better. He, he's – I remember – I don't – I think I think his body type, if I'm being honest, I think his body type made me at the time – I don't know what it, what it is. I felt like – the whole time he was a guard, he was a guard, he was a guard. And I watched that and it's like, he, I mean, you know, he's a good player. He's better athlete. He's physical. He's tough. He can get out and run um, better than you think. 
Um, you know, Tennessee ball is good. I wouldn't say Tennessee ball is like the greatest ball in the world, but it's solid ball. You can get their top eight to ten guys, six to ten guys. It's, got, it's gotten better over the years with Nashville being a more transit right. city now, more people moving in. But again, it's like you said, he's not really playing Nashville ball. He's playing the Knoxville area right. Farragut County schools. So, I mean, even in, and you can look in the stands, you know, he's not playing at huge stadiums, not playing at packed houses. He's kind of taking advantage of some inferior competition. I think that's always something, especially on the offensive defensive line. When you come to the SEC, there is a little bit of that learning curve. You have to kind of get physically ready to do that. Uh, I mean, if he clearly possesses all the natural to tools to do so, clearly, you know, the intelligence to be able to play three, four spots on the offensive line for several coaches. So he's a better prospect than I remember. I, and he was good. He's a five-star. Like, I remember all yeah. that. Um, but a better, more well-rounded. I, I just – I remembered him as a mauler, um, just straight mauler. And it took me, I think, going to the West Coast, coming back and seeing him uh, five years later to be like, oh, he was a, he was more so Really appreciated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Murph, last guy. Last guy before we call it for our, what, fifth scout school. But Joe Juan Williams, for all you Vanderbilt Commodore fans watching out there. Shout 2016 out, class, corner, Murph, you're going to like. Interesting height uh, differential, I should say, when we get into his combine measurements. But okay. at a high school, listed according to 247, 6'2", 195 pounds from Hendersonville. Speaking of another Tennessee high school ball guy from Hendersonville, Tennessee, signed with Vanderbilt, was a second-round draft pick by the New England Patriots in the 19 draft this offseason. Uh, just signed with the Minnesota Vikings, so mm, okay. uh, so he's now with the Vikings. This is his first year in the with the Vikings. Let me get to the film. So 2016, that's a Pruitt era for us, huh? Correct. So yeah, I remember him coming through with Pruitt. Pruitt at the time was pretty with uh, pretty plugged in in Tennessee. Uh, we we recruited like Rico McGraw from Tennessee. Rico McGraw, yeah. Um, we had uh, uh, the tight end. Did you have, was that D'Angelo Gibbs, Chad Clay around that time? Like uh, Jemias yeah. Williams, and then what, what was his name? Uh, he played they a little bit. So McGee, Tyreek McGee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were all from Georgia. I was trying to think of guys from Tennessee. We were. You're right. Rico uh, McGraw is the one that stands Jackson out. That was a DB. I think Jackson Who? Harris. Jackson Harris. Oh, you're talking about Tennessee guys in general. Yeah, Jack, Jack Jackson Harris was a guy in general just from Tennessee. Because I right? cut up these guys because I had at the time Tennessee in my area. So I think I cut up Jawan Williams, uh, Jackson Harris. Kane uh, Patterson was in that vicinity. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, hold on. Can we restart? I'm sorry. Can we restart this? Yeah, yeah. Murph, I just, I, 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 I'm ruining it, but I got to tell you. So his NFL combine verified height, remember, I said in high school, according to 247, 6'2 corner. Remember the NFL combine. This dude measured in. I had to go check it at numerous sources. 6'4, 211. Wow. And ran a 46440. 4'6'4, huh? So hung around with the Patriots for a couple years. Couldn't ever really. I was reading up. They said he couldn't really ever find a true spot in the secondary. Just got to think he was a little bit like. Kind of a safety body, man, but a little bit kind right. of like an in the box, like in the box safety slash linebacker hybrid type build. Well, it goes back to the thing we were just saying, right? Like, you know, I was in Seattle towards the tail end, kind of that of that Legion of Boom kind of deal. 
And that mm-hmm. was when they had Sherman and Chancellor. Chancellor. And, you know, again, like who's that, the other one? Earl, Earl Thomas? Earl Thomas. Yeah. All those dudes were there in the Legion of Boom, at, you know, at, at, you know, throughout, I guess throughout the whole, I, I got there at the very, very end of it, which I don't even know if it was technically still that. But, um, but, you know, all those guys were bigger body dudes. Sherman was a bigger body dude. And, and, but he was a guy that, throughout his career at Stanford, you know, they didn't really know how to use him. He was a fifth round pick or whatever. I don't think much, you know, many, I don't think he ran particularly well um, at the combine. So he's a guy, similar situation, maybe, so to speak, in terms of taller, bigger body playing the DB position. Um, Maybe not the most fluid guy in the world, maybe not, you know, crazy fast, but uh, has some kind of short area quickness, ball skills, physicality uh coming from an intellectual school uh, sherman came from uh stanford juan's coming from bandy so similar kind of backgrounds and i think sherman's success is probably what vaulted somebody like juan williams coming out of vandy into a conversation uh you know as a first second round pick for somebody like the patriots because it's that time when you know gus bradley the seahawks you know all those dudes are kind of running that defense and and kind of taking the league by storm. So I think, you know, he was a guy that, I mean, yeah, six, six, you know, six, five corner that can, that can play yeah, the I mean, ball. Six, the combine six, four, two eleven and ran a four, six, four, 40. Right. So, so they probably, if I'm assuming back in 2009, yeah, 2019 draft, Patriots probably saw a potential. They probably, they knew he probably couldn't play corner in the NFL. Let's be honest. You can see it on his high school tape. Like he, he's probably going to get ran by the NFL, which again, I, mean, what I don't know. That's what I think. That's what Sherman ran. That's my point. Like I think that's the whole point. He, I think he benefited from that era where it's that kind of bump and run. Like you can kind of be physical and kind of just like do what what those dudes in the Legion of Boom did. And I think it was probably a little bit like matchup based. I, I can see where you're coming from for sure. Like matchup based was like, well, we can't ask him to cover this guy. He will run, but like we can keep him on the field because, like you said, it's about packages. It's like. Well, this guy's a pretty big enough body to roll in there, 6'4". I'm sure by the time he really started playing for the Patriots, he added more weight and was probably closer to 215, 220. But like you said, it was kind of like, hey, this guy, can, he he's athletic enough to cover tight ends for sure. Like, like we can keep him in the box. He can cover tight ends. Uh, he can probably play a little bit of middle of the field. We can slide him down in the box. Like He's not going to go be on an island by himself. But like you said, he has some position versatility. And then also probably as he got a little older, it's kind of like, and the Patriots kind of phase out, change some DCs every now and then. But like, you could see them kind of like, uh, we kind of drafted better. We can get some guys through free agency. It's like it, it kind of ran its course. But for the time, he was fine. Like he had some versatility. At least, again, I wasn't in the building, but it's just from looking at it and just reading kind of what happened. That's why he's with the Minnesota Vikings this year. Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting because. You know, so often, and, and you know, I go back to my notes, and and I've, I've kind of made my own notes or whatever. But like, you know, we always look for guys that were really corners first yeah. in high school. Like we want to. It's always the classic. You tell me, but if you can't run, Murph, we'll just move him to safety. Right, and 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 well, that's that's the worry, right? So, and you know, you see his versatility here. He is playing both, but he is a guy that is playing a lot of safety. Um, you know, I, I get how there could be concerns potentially like, hey, he's 6'4". Does he even have the fluidity and the ability? Yeah, does he have the hip fluidity? You took the word right yeah. out of him out. At 6'4", to play DB, 
you know, you see the willingness, you see his ability to come downhill. He, he's a willing tackler. Um, he's not afraid of contact. He, he looks like he's a confident guy. Um, uh, you know, obviously he does have the length that you're looking for, but um, it is interesting because you go back. You, I, I want to see um, as, a, as a recruit, who, who did he have? Do you know? He was a highly rated kid for Bandy. If I remember right, he's a four-star. Was he? Yeah. Like, I think it was a big get for them, like, back then. I don't remember it specifically, but looking back at the profile today, he had, like, mid-SEC offers that teams that normally Vanderbilt wouldn't beat out for. Let's see here. So, I I, uh, I, I worked with his DB coach at UW for a little bit, um, uh, I believe. I could Again, I get – What did he say? Um, well, I, I remember, so he was, he was, you know, you, you dub when I was there, it was a time when Jimmy Lake was doing his thing and we were putting out DBs at a, at a pretty, you know, good clip, as good as anybody on the West coast was, um, really, you know, about as anybody in the country, uh, we had Gerald Alexander went to the league, uh, from, you know, that kind of tree. Uh, and then Terrence Brown was part of that tree. He was at Vanderbilt and was coaching Jawan Williams. And I remember just how excited he was when he got drafted by the Patriots and just how, you know, much that relationship meant to him. And, and it was cool for, for us to see him go from being a GA at UW, going to Vanderbilt, yeah. able to take, you know, a lot of the stuff. You know, we, we, at UW, we always pr- pride ourselves on tackling, coming downhill, uh, being able to play, you know, play with the physicality, play with the confidence, play with the swagger. So I think, you know, just – uh, to go to a place like Vanderbilt where you have a natural talent of a guy who is 6'4", uh, to see some of that DNA from a place where you've been and some of the, the, the you know, nucleus of, of some of the coaches you've know, been with be there is pretty cool. Mark brings up a question for you. I used to get into it a little bit with one of the coaches I'd work with about corners being able to tackle. He would always tell me, I mean, if they can cover, it doesn't matter. I don't need them to tackle because we were really? watching an eval tape of a kid being mad. I was like, well, I mean, when he's trying to fight off blocks on these bubble screens or they get him one-on-one in the flats and you called a great play and he's there and he just misses in the flats because he can't tackle, we can't say we didn't know that because we're watching the eval tape right now. I was always for – you'd have to be a sure tackler, but at least be willing to put your nose in the honey and be a willing tackler is what you want to see, I feel like. Right, yeah, no. Well, at least uh, I think – for for Coach Lake, it was he wanted to see it. Um, you know, a lot of coaches, and I don't know if this was just like a UW thing, but a lot of coaches, especially at UW, was we want to see it. Um, we want to see him do it, right? Like there was a guy we were recruiting, and it may have been Nick Bolton, who plays for the Chiefs now. Um, but there's a guy Nick that we Bolton were from what Lone Star Frisco. Mm-hmm. He was he was committed to us for a little bit. Um, there was a guy, it may have been him or not, I don't know. There's a guy that we were recruiting, and it kind of, you know, spooked us a little bit because we were recruiting him an inside backer, but we didn't really see him play inside backer. So it was a deal where it's like, well, I know he can, you know, he can test this. I know he can statistics that. I know he can, you know, whatever. Yeah. When you don't play the position, though, it's a little – the projection is a little bit of a projection, right? Like, it, it, it's a little bit different when you're in there – sifting through the wash having to kind of read things and see things versus like you want to be able to feel confident that he can do it you know you make a and, good point Murph because I remember Nick Bolton like you said he was the guy because when I was at AM then I think me and you would text about it a little bit when he's committed to y'all I remember 
you just didn't know if he was going to be an ankle biter inside the box at the inside linebacker position. It's like you said, you don't want a guy as your inside linebacker, it's your ankle biter. Is it an ankle biter? At corner, DB, safe, stuff like right. that. Dude, you're the, you're safety. You're the last defense. You get him down any means possible. Right. You want your guy there to be able to, you know, stock, you know, shack shed, be able to yeah. do his different off the block, uh, be able to read it, you know, that kind of whole deal. Cools, hips. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Explode. Um, so, you know, I think it, it, it it's, I don't know. Hold on, hold on. I'm trying to pull it up. So, yeah, Jawan Williams had pretty much everybody, um, you know, at least it, yeah, so he had 33 offers, um, you know, Alabama, Penn State, LSU. So he yeah, he was pretty as national, you know, a recruit as anybody was. So um, it's cool that he stayed in state, went to Vandy, turned to a second-round pick, still in the league. Um, but, you know, I think I think for, for going back to the original thing, yeah, in terms of the DB tackling, I think – you know, it's a deal for Coach Lake, and I agree. You want to be able to see him do it. Obviously, the mentality is such a big thing. If, if you at least if you show indications of it, you give me something to work with. If you're pulling up, if you're really not willing to put your face in there or whatever, you're not going to get to college and all of a sudden start doing it. There's nothing – I'm not going to be able to flip a switch to, to elicit that from you. So uh, he was a guy that not only wanted to see a willingness but wanted to see a completion of that willingness – um, you know, a lot of what we did, we did a lot of rugby tackling. You know, we really watched a lot of rugby tackling, emphasized a lot of like the all black stuff, um, just in terms of like reducing concussions and uh, increasing effectiveness and, and success rates and all that kind of stuff. So we were really into the, the tackling science. Well, the and Seahawks, didn't the Seahawks start the old kind of like, like you said, the all blacks, like rugby style probably, gator role? Yeah. Because, um, you know, Pete and Pete, um, Carol and, and Coach Pete, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty, you know, close or whatever, at, at least at that time in terms of the relationship between the staff. So they'd share a lot of stuff and, and it was a, you know, it was a good, a good dynamic. So, um, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, I'm definitely of the thought of for sure. I want to see it. I want to show, I want to see it. Not only do I want to show a willingness, like you don't have to be perfect because you can work with uh, somebody who has the, the mentality and the effort. But uh, if they're, if they're not in high school, demonstrating that they're going to put themselves in a position to do that, I would go ahead and write off uh, any chance that they're going to start, you know, doing it in college. It's just not going to happen. Well, Murph, before we get out of here, one quick question. Again, appreciate you joining us. We got one uh, after I ask you this question, we got a couple of announcements before we get out of here for this episode. But Murph, who, after going back and watching these three guys today, uh, we both hadn't watched them in a while. Who's tape? Would you say you're like, hmm, I was probably most impressed going back watching that. Who would you say who who takes that home today? Um, I would say it's relative to my expectation. So I would say Damian Pierce. Cade mm-hmm. um, Mays is 6'6", 320. He's a five-star. Had Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee. Everybody was going for him. Yeah. I feel like Damian Pierce – and I know he's committed to Bama. D- Damian Pierce was just kind of like that – Ho hum, four star, steady Eddie, blue collar guy. Like he's a guy that got a, like he committed to your school. And like, hey, yeah, Damian Pierce, four star, number two hundred in the country. And like, it wasn't a guy that you were like. He oh was my steady God. Eddie. He let his film kind of speak for him. Yeah, and I think going back and watching his tape and and with a different lens now, it's like, oh wow, he was doing stuff that, um, you know, with a different lens. 
you know, with, with the effort, the tenacity, the physicality, even just like, Hey, you know, the lens of, all right, this, this 40 yard time doesn't need to be crazy, crazy, but what he does do, he does really well. And how about we look at that and not about what he doesn't do we'll see what he does do and what he does do really well could translate in the sec into the NFL. Apparently. What about you? Yeah, I, like you said, relative. I like that. Damian Pierce, like you watch the first clip, he gets out in the open field, he busts one. It's like, man, he does not pick up his knees. He's a short strider. You're just like, ugh. Like you said, the more you're watching, the ability to like always make the initial tackler miss. Like just strong, powerful lower body. Like you mentioned, good, good analogy. A fire, like a fire, built like a fire hydrant tree stump down his lower body. So I'd say, and then I just forgot how nasty uh, and violent. Um, Cade Mays was. So that, that that was impressive too. But before we get out of here, guys, remember, me and Josh kind of got together. We're, we're going to move with the season approaching the scout school segment to, we believe, Wednesday. Uh, it's probably about 99% there. I'll keep you updated. But uh, we enjoy doing this. We hope you enjoy us bringing this to you. Uh, some stuff to do in the summer before we get some uh, football with us here within the next month. But we're going to move scout school to Wednesday nights. Murph, at seven, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, correct? Correct. Correct. So perfect. We'll move that to Wednesday. We hope you stay with us. Uh, we can keep it just like we do now. And then, like I said before the episode, the uh, Chris Stewart interview with the voice of the Crimson Tide basketball and baseball was also the voice of Alabama football this past year while Eli Gold was out dealing with his health stuff. I had the interview, a chance to interview him last night. Uh, he couldn't come on the live show. Obviously, wish he, I know he wish he could. I wish he could. But I will post that uh, interview over the weekend or early next week. So keeping it up with that. But, again, appreciate you joining us on this episode of Mock 10 Sports. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Keep following us on Mock 10 Sports for the best information on SEC sports.